0: Church family, how are we doing this morning, good? Every Sunday I greet you that way, I'm not sure if you've noticed it before, but they're not just words, I'm very intentional with that greeting because it is a good reminder to all of us that we are in fact a church family, that we're called to walk together through good and bad, that we're called to encourage and strengthen, to care for one another. That we're called to motivate and speak truth to each other in love as we seek to be more like Jesus. I know we love to complicate things, but being a Christian is simply more him, less me. It's all of us together through the power of God's word and spirit, and this, his bride, the church, being encouraged and motivated to live our lives so we reflect more and more the person of Jesus Christ. We're living in a time of great uncertainty. I prepared this message, you know, before the chaos of, of a hurricane, or it looks like we're going to be spared. But, um, but again, we're living in a time of great uncertainty, and disease and war and famine are not new. From the beginning of time, human beings have struggled with sin, with the result of the fall, with all of the chaos that happens as a result of that. But in my lifetime. I have not seen so much turmoil and chaos and uncertainty. And so now more than ever, the world needs the church to be the church. Now more than ever, the world needs the church to be the church. We need each other, and the world needs us. In 2013, I preached a sermon here entitled Unity, Teamwork, and Encouragement one of the times Pastor Kenneth asked me to come preach, and I was looking back, and in 2013, unity, teamwork, and encouragement. And so I wanted to revisit that theme this morning. It's a different sermon, but I wanted to revisit that theme because I can't think of a time in my lifetime that people have been more divided. Whether it's masks or vaccines or politics or culture, race, The economy, how to raise your kids, school choices, what diet is best, and on and on and on. Everybody thinks they know what's best for everybody else. I jokingly said to somebody, it's almost like if you said, hey, does everybody like ice cream? Somebody would find an excuse, you know, not to like that. And the person I was talking to literally said, I like frozen yogurt. (laughs) Like, I rest my case. Who likes frozen yogurt, by the way? Anyway, sorry. So I'm going to start with a joke. Some of you may have heard this joke before. I think it's funny, and hopefully you will too. But the reason it's funny, the reason most jokes are funny, is because there is an element of truth. And the truth, I'm afraid, is a little less funny. So, first the joke, and then the lesson with a serious message. I was walking along, and I saw a guy on a bridge, and he was about to jump. Don't do it, I said. And he said, well, nobody loves me. And I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, I do. I said, are you Jewish or Christian? He said, I'm Christian. I said, well, me too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, I'm a Protestant. I said, well, me too. What domination are you? And he said, I'm a Baptist. I said, me too. Are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, I'm Northern Baptist. I said, you're not going to believe this. Me Me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or are you Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or are you Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? And he said, me, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, I can't believe this but me too. But are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879? Or are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And he said, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1912. And I said, die, heretic.
1: And I pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) Funny, but not so funny. Because we tend to drill down and seek that which
0: divides instead of that which unites. Because it's easier to label us and them. It's easier to marginalize and to dehumanize when we categorize people. When there's those who are in and those who are out. See, there are Christians today who reject anyone outside of their denominational understanding. I've heard people tell me that there's only one translation of the Bible that you can use. I've heard people tell me that if you don't have a specific view of the end times, you're not saved. And the list goes on and on. And we laugh, but how often do we ourselves disparage or marginalize or criticize or complain instead of actually cooperating or communicating? How often do we behave more like the Pharisees than Jesus? See, when people hear I'm a pastor, the first thing they want to do is they want to tell me all their bad experience with church and with Christians. And I listen And I say, you know, it's interesting. At my church, we don't follow Christians, we follow Jesus. So we can talk about him, because he had a problem with the church and he had a problem with religious people too, but let's talk about Jesus. Because if you want to see a hypocrite and you want to see bad behavior, all I got to do is look in the mirror for that. I don't have to look at my neighbor, I just have to look in my own heart. So I don't need evidence from somebody else to point that people are bad and depraved. The Bible teaches that. But what about Jesus? Criticize the church, criticize me, criticize Christians. But what about Jesus? See, how often do we think our particular preferences or understandings are the only ones? Now, don't get me wrong. There are things we unite around as Christ followers. There are things that are non-negotiable, and other things are less important. They are not unimportant, but they are less important. There are things we'll discuss, but we're not gonna divide over. Augustine said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. See, how often, or how we treat Those most different than us says a lot about our maturity and our understanding of what it means to live like Jesus. So pick your area of disagreement, but yet we're called toward Christian unity. We're called to a level of cooperation. In fact, Jesus praised that very thing for us. And when I thought of this theme, and I thought of what I wanted to talk about, and I thought, how can I convey, how can I pour out my heart, how can I get people to see the importance, I was immediately reminded of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And so to pray, to begin the sermon this morning, I'm going to read from parts of Jesus' prayer. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and listen. Because these are Jesus' words himself,
1: as he prays for you and me. Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come.
0: Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name so that they may be one as we are one. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by your truth, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have
1: loved them even as you have loved me. Amen. Jesus prays for us to have the fullness of his joy.
0: Jesus prays for protection and for sanctification, which is just a big word that says becoming more like Him. And He sends us, and He prays that we would go united, so that the world may know. Not in full agreement, not with some naive utopian ideal, but united. Jesus prays that all those who profess the name of Jesus Christ be united so that the world may know who he is. Pastor Jamie preached last week and talked about 1.7 billion people in the world proclaim the name of Jesus. I wonder how many just in the greater New Bedford area proclaim the name of Jesus. And can you imagine what it would look like If we came together and cooperated, not just here in this church body. I'm not talking, this isn't a message about CFC. This is a message about all of us and the way we engage others in the church, outside of the church.
1: It's about our posture for those who are different than us. And so, to begin with, I want to talk
0: about what unites us. Not as Americans, not even as Christians. But as human beings, Genesis 127, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, imago Dei, image of God, every single human being that ever has lived and ever will live, bears the image of God himself, every single one. Now, we know sin tarnished that image, and we know Christ came to redeem that image, but every single human being was created in the image of God. That unites us. Romans one twenty three, For all have sinned. Somebody say all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. All have sinned. Every single one. No one is alive that was not created in the image of God, and no one is alive who hasn't sinned, who hasn't been tarnished by sin. And we justified by his grace. Redemption through Christ alone. And finally, as Paul closes the famous love chapter of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 13, he says this in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, we're all creating God's image. We've all sinned. And we all have a lack of full knowledge and full understanding. So for everybody, eternal life is the result of throwing ourselves at the mercy of God and trusting in the cross of Christ, period. That is it. You don't need to be a scholar to understand that. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to have a theology degree. We throw ourselves at the mercy of God because Christ did what we could never do. So what unites us all as Christians is Jesus. And when Jesus prays for us, he's getting at something deep within us. And he's saying, "What unites us isn't your doctrine. What unites us isn't your denomination. What unites us is the church, is Jesus Christ Himself, is throwing ourselves fully at His mercy." Other things are important. Don't get me wrong. Doctrine's important. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm, I love education. I'm going to continue to pursue further education. But if the fruit of our education, if the fruit of our understanding causes us to be more like the Pharisees than Jesus, we may be correct in our, in our understanding, but we're wrong in our application. We might have good orthodoxy, but orthopraxy, which is the
1: practice of it, is all wrong. For the most part, the Pharisees weren't incorrect in their theology. They didn't have a knowledge problem. They had a heart problem. They knew the scriptures, they just didn't know the one to whom the scriptures pointed.
0: Even when he stood before him. So all of our theology, every single person in this room has a flawed theology somewhere. Nobody sees every issue exactly right. So we ought to be humble. Cuz God is infinite. And we are feeble. And we are finite. And there are good Bible-believing Christians, Christ-honoring Christians who disagree on things. So we ought to proceed with humility and grace. Because if you asked me, and if I asked you, are you a loving person, we'd all probably say, yeah. I mean, for the most part, I mean, I want to be, but Paul defines love. And I know we read this at weddings because we have this romanticized view of love, but Paul says this, love is patient. Now if you ask me if I'm loving, I'm going to say yeah. But if you ask me if I'm patient, I don't know. They would pray for patience, don't pray for patience.
1: Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. Doesn't look at everybody else and what they have and their gifts and their resources, their accolades, their accomplishments. Love doesn't boast. It isn't arrogant. It isn't rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Ouch. It isn't irritable or resentful.
0: Now, if you ask me if I'm a loving person, I don't know. I want to be. And with Christ's help, we can be. But let's be honest with ourselves.
1: Because we judge ourselves just by our intentions. And we judge everybody else by their actions. And we don't want to be
0: judged by our actions. We don't want to be judged by our fruit. We want to be judged by what we say. See, it's okay to have our own views. It's not okay if the result of those few views cause us to be arrogant and unloving toward other people. And this isn't a message. This isn't a CFC message. This isn't a specifically for us. This is how do we, as the church, how do we engage the world? How do we engage other churches? One of the things that Pastor Ken and I really connected on from the very beginning that I think God honored and I think was the root of our friendship is that we were kingdom-minded. If it was a net plus for the kingdom, then we all win. It wasn't about our our particular churches or our particular... It wasn't about any of that. It was always about Jesus, about his kingdom, about people knowing him. And sadly, there's so little cooperation amongst churches in the same area. Everybody's doing their own thing, having their own meetings and their own groups. And the world looks at us and says, if they're divided... Those who claim unity in Christ, what hope does anybody have? I'm not naive. I've been around. I mean, I can tell you my whole theological
1: journey. But one thing I've learned is humility and grace toward others. 1.7 billion people on the planet claim the name of Jesus.
0: How many people really understand what that should look like? Imagine what it would look like if just in this area, people would come together
1: and pray and serve instead of bicker and be self-centered. We're all creating God's image.
0: We all sin. We're all imperfect. We're all in constant need of God's grace. There is not a moment in my life that I don't need to desperately cling to Jesus Christ. Not a moment. The enemy wants nothing more than to destroy us. Wants nothing more than to separate us from that which nourishes us. And I said it last week or a couple weeks ago. God doesn't care. I mean, the enemy doesn't care if you miss church or you're unable to serve because of tennis lessons or because you're drunk in a bar somewhere. He just cares that you're removed, that you're disconnected from the things that give
1: life. You know, we had a prayer time here Thursday night. There's 400 people or so that
0: attend services here. Another 100 or so connected online. 500 people, let's say.
1: There were nine people in the room on Thursday night when we prayed. Now, I'm not telling you that to make you feel bad.
0: If there's anything anything in the world I want to convey to you, It's that I love you with all of my heart. And I I should get awards for self-centeredness. I was a special kind of selfish. And I spent my life pursuing things that I thought would fill me, and I ended up empty. And I know because you reach out and you call, and we know as the pastors that this brokenness, that our family members are unsaved, that this struggles financial, health-wise... And I know that everything in the world will seek to disconnect you from the things that give life. But a sign of a healthy church is not that 10,000 people come on a Sunday. It's that the people who come are connected, are committed, and that their lives are being changed as a result. I'm not sad because there was nine people here because of any other reason than it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that we're so easily pulled away and distracted from the things that God wants for us, the best things that God wants for us. Bob Glover shared a quote the other day by Ernest Shackleton, self is a subject that most of us are very fluent on. See, here's a reminder. It's not about us, right? Right? I'll say things to you, and I might not be a favorite person, but I hope like sometimes you when know, I talk to my kids, I'm like, you know, you're not going to hate me for a minute, but I hope you know I love you. I hope even if it hurts, even if you disagree, I will rather stand here and tell you the truth because I love you, and I want what's best for you, and that might sometimes make you feel uncomfortable. But if it was about us, if it was just about our acceptance of correct theology enough, we get to heaven, then we'd all be in heaven the moment
1: we accept Jesus. Why are we left here? Why are we still here? That's not the end game. That's the beginning.
0: Now we get to be part of his plan. Now we get to be used of him, the one who promises to build his church. No matter what COVID does, and no matter what the weather does, and no matter what our sinful hearts do, he will build his church. And we can be a part of that, or we can come to the end of our life filled with regrets. People in the world will come to know Jesus when the church is being the church. And we can't expect to convert the world from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness if we don't even live separate from self-centeredness. See, often it's more about posture than position. You can have the correct understanding, you can have the correct knowledge, but the reason that we read the Bible is not so we're Bible trivia experts. It's not so we have our facts straight. Knowledge is important insofar as it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. We understand the scriptures to know the heart and mind of God, not to
1: simply be, as I like to say, wicked smart, but to know the heart and mind of God. See
0: the—I mentioned this before, but—and don't misunderstand me. When we read scripture, it'll speak to us. It'll speak directly to our hearts. And it'll speak differently to us at different times in our life. So, yes, scripture does speak to you. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But the notion of reading the scriptures and saying, What is God saying to me? is so Western and individualized, it was entirely foreign to people who read the scriptures. It was always, What is God saying to us, His people? What is God saying to His church? Yes, there's an application of what is God saying to me, but that's secondary. But we're so individualistic that everything is
1: about us when it's supposed to be about them. We come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ.
0: We gather together and we have gifts and we have resources. Your gifts are never for you. If you're a Christian, your gifts are always to build up the body of Christ. And here's the cool thing. The way that God created us is that we are blessed when we bless others. That something special happens inside of us when God's able to use us, when we're part of his plan and his purposes. And when we ignore the will of God, and instead seek our own way, the result is always discord and disunity. See, together as Christians, we could go a long way toward fulfilling God's call in our world. And in order to do this, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, Jesus told the disciples they would receive God's power through the Holy Spirit. And John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father to send his power to all of Christianity through the Holy Spirit. God's definition of power is different than ours. God's definition of power is the ability to carry out his will in the world. That's what power is to God.
1: And he has empowered us, but we come and we receive and we hold on. And we don't give out. I've I've preached
0: before and I said they shouldn't call this church. We should never call this church. We should call this preparation for church. And church is what happens when you walk out the door. Instead, church, instead of being a people we are, is a place we go to. Jesus changed the world with 12 men. And I think Pastor Jamie mentioned last week, he he says we'll do greater things than he'll do. Why? Because he was one person in one place at one time. And there are supposed to be 1.7 billion followers of Jesus now. Think of how powerful our churches would be today if every one of us would pray constantly, devotedly, with one mind. See, eternal life, kingdom life, is not just reserved for when we die. It starts now. It starts when we submit ourselves and we allow the spirit of God to change us from within, and it's centered on our relationship with him. I, you know, there's a big thing now with deconversion stories that I've mentioned it before. And people always talk about deconversion stories like, and it's always, it's always so cold and it's always so fact based They're never talking about a relationship that they lost, a person that they were in love with, now they're no longer in love with. It's all, it's all in the head. Oh, I came to believe. And I, I can't help but go, did you ever really love Jesus? Did you ever really know him? You might've known a lot about him.
1: A lot of people know a lot about them. But were you ever in love with them? Deeply, fully. Because when you're in love with somebody, it's not so easy to walk away like that.
0: I've been in love with a lot of, a lot of things in the world, a lot of, you know, a lot of things I thought for sure would do it, right? My heart, the reason I preach. The reason I'm doing this, I'm an IT guy. I'm a computer guy. That was my background. Do you know how easy it is to just fix computers?
1: I mean, I could be doing that all day long. It'd be, it's not the call of God in my life. God changed me. I had an encounter with Jesus when I was at the, the most broken
0: that you could ever be. I, I, didn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't hopeful. Other people had to be hopeful for me because I didn't have it in me. I didn't walk into the Teen Challenge and say, I'm going to be free from drugs. This place is going to change my life. I walked into the Teen Challenge saying, maybe this will buy me 30 days before I die because I don't want my wife and kids to have to bury me yet. So when I say hopeless, that's the kind of hopeless I'm talking about. Not a bad week, more like a bad 15
1: years. And you know what was the best thing that ever happened to me? Because everything got stripped away. And what
0: I was left with was an understanding that it wasn't what I knew, it was who I knew. The most important thing in the world, thing that can never be taken from me, the thing that no matter what happens in my life, I can walk with Jesus. And if that's not enough for you, I've heard people say, if you went to heaven and all your wildest dreams came true, every desire you had deep down inside, but there was no Jesus there, would that still be heaven to you? And if it would,
1: I fear you've missed it. You don't understand that I stand here and tell you these things you should do, not
0: because I have a list of things I want you to do, but because I've known enough to know that he'll do everything he can, the enemy, to pull us away. To get us separated, to get us out of community. I mean, the community groups we just talked about, that's not, I would rather you be in a community group than come here on a Sunday. Life transformation takes place. The idea of a small group of people doing life together is the entire New Testament. The idea of coming and hearing one person speak, it's a very sort of, it's really, the, the Greeks did that. It's really more of a system from the Greeks. Throughout the entire New Testament, the church was a group of people coming together. Now, there's a place for teaching, but this shouldn't be 99% of your spiritual life. This should be 2% of your spiritual life. And if it's not, then when temptation comes, when difficulty comes, when struggles come, you don't know how to get down on your face. You don't know how to pick up the phone and tell people, I'm really broken. I don't even have the energy to pray. Would you pray for me? Because I don't even have it in me. Because you haven't developed those relationships. And I want, with all my heart, this church to be a place where people can be real together, where they can come together and say, I am so broken, but I'm here. We use the expression, loving people back to life. With the love of Jesus, that's what we're called to do. That's the primary thing. And if we get to heaven and God's going to correct
1: all of our theology, all of our theology, we'll know fully. When Jesus prayed... He prays for something deep. He didn't pray for an agreement. He prayed for unity.
0: And the source source of our unity is not in human structures. The source of our unity is not in denominations. The source of our unity is not in our education. The source of our unity is in the person of Jesus Christ. I read this by an Anglican pastor. When we pray together and work together, it increases our capacity to do God's work in the world. For most people, life is just about getting the most stuff. It's consumer mentality, and the emphasis is empty because no matter how much we have or how much we buy or how much we accomplish or no matter who we know or what we know, there will always be somebody with more stuff and better stuff and more prestige, and our life in the end will be hollow and empty and meaningless. I know that to be true by experience the story of a burglar who was arrested and was brought before the judge for a trial he was found guilty and when he was sentenced the judge said is there anything you have to say in your defense and he said well your honor it's like this you know the more a man has the more a man wants and every time I would get something I just wanted more and more and I, you know I just can't control that and the judge said is that so Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do I'm going to sentence you to 15 years in prison how many more do you want See, divergent theologies, different understandings can help us stimulate one another. Can help us be better together, to grow, to sharpen us. Paul tells us in Galatians 5 how we live as Christians. We read this a few weeks back. That The, the point of our freedom isn't to push our own agenda. The point of our freedom isn't to get everybody to think and vote and speak and, and live like we do. Verse 13 You my brothers and sisters were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh
1: In other words don't use your freedom to make it all about you Rather serve one another humbly in love Serve one another with humility and love sounds so simple, doesn't it? For the entire
0: law is fulfilled in keeping the command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then this is what Paul says. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, because you'll be destroyed by each other. You don't have to be a theologian to, you don't even have to believe the Bible to see that. You just look around. Look within your own family, your own church. Paul's saying, look, if you think freedom is about you, and everybody else thinks freedom's all about them, you know what's going to happen?
1: You're going to destroy each other. And we see it. We see it all the time. So Paul said, so
0: I say, verse 16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We're called to serve
1: one another in love. The work of the church. Pray, go, build. Pray. Pray. If not, we'll destroy each other. And here's the thing. It begins, all
0: the things I'm talking about, begin with a real concern for those who don't know Jesus. Nehemiah is a great example
1: of somebody who is motivated by his love for God, his love for people, and his love for his home. Nehemiah had a heart for the lost,
0: chapter one, verse three, it says, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its
1: gates are burned with fire. He got a bad report. Now he could have blamed a whole bunch of people
0: He could have talked to all of his neighbors about the bad report. He could have gone on Facebook about the bad report. He could have written letters about the bad report. He could have made excuses on why there's nothing he could have done about the bad report because, you know, the system and sin and people are broken and that's that.
1: But here's what Nehemiah did. Verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down
0: and I wept, and I mourned for days, and I was fasting
1: and praying before the God of heaven. When do we, when the news is bad, weep and fast and pray in mourning for days?
0: You know what Nehemiah
1: prayed to God for? An opportunity to do something. He prayed that God would open doors. We find slight inconveniences
0: and we immediately have 50 excuses. Nehemiah's heart was to weep and to fast and to mourn for days and to say, God, just give me some kind of an opportunity. And he did, and you can read the story. It wasn't without obstacles. At any point, he could have said, yeah, you know what? This is not working out. This is way too difficult. But he talked to the king. He gathered the people. And one of the amazing accomplishments, the book of Nehemiah says it took 52 days to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. This was a huge wall. It was for defense. It was a thick wall, thick on both sides. People walked on top of it. It was gigantic around the whole of Jerusalem,
1: 52 days. Why? Because burdens are lighter when everyone works together. That's why Jamie talked last week about the 20% and the 80 or the 10% and the 90 it's
0: across the board churches with 30 people and churches with 10,000 people it's always the same 10%, 20% if it's a good church do 80-90% of the work
1: it's so sad can you imagine what it would look like if 100% of the people did the work Think of the evangelistic outreach, the discipleship opportunities
0: that could be done if the church as a whole would come together. I tell the leadership team all the time, church leadership is always this. It's always trying to protect the 10% that are doing everything from burning out, making sure that they remember to sit at the feet of Jesus because you can't, you know, do 19 things be like, hey, why don't you just do two or three? There's people you just can't stop. And then getting the 90% or the 80% more involved. Because you know what happens? Community is built. The effectiveness of the ministry is exponentially increased.
1: Lives are changed. And it makes it easier for that 10%. So
0: here's questions we can ask ourselves. Am I a burden to the work God is trying to do? Or am I making the burden lighter? If they did a study in my church, would I be counted among the 10% or the 90? And which group at the end of my life do I want to be counted in? See, I'm not telling you this to put you down. I'm telling you this to encourage you to get involved, to work together for the glory of God. We have family members and friends that don't know Jesus. People we love are facing health issues and financial issues. We're living in a community filled with brokenness. And if the church isn't being the church, what well, hope does the world have? I was just away on a vacation. I had a great time in New Hampshire with my family. I love to spend time outside. Summer's beautiful in New England. But you know what resting and refreshing is for? So you can continue the work. You're rested and refreshed and renewed. It's a biblical principle. God instituted it. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested to institute a season. You stop, you rest, you're refreshed and renewed, and then you go back to work. That's
1: what refreshing and renewing is for. I'm going to pick on the men. Okay, you guys ready?
0: When a mother comes to Christ, her family will join her at church 17% of the time.
1: When a father comes to Christ, his family will join him at church 93% of the time. Midweek
0: activities are typically attended by 70% more female participants. Ready? This is going to hurt. Because your wife is serving, it doesn't mean you are. doesn't. You don't get credit for that. Well, my family, that's not how it works. Don't miss out on the opportunity to get involved. Everybody can't do everything, but everybody can do a little something. And I get busy seasons, busy times. I get it. And I've said this before. People have a rough month, rough week, rough couple months, rough year sometimes. Some, some of you have a rough decade. That's just mismanagement. <laughs> You're in charge of your calendar. And I say this not because, look, it doesn't, I say it doesn't matter to me. It matters to me because I love you, but it doesn't matter to me. I'm here. I'm going to be here till my dying breath. I'm never going to stop serving Jesus, and I'm going to do it with whoever's with me. The staff, we're just going to do it. We're going to keep doing it, and whoever's here is going to do it. There's no, and it's a joy. It's not a, but man, would it be great to come to prayer and see 50 people or 100 people, dare I say, two, 300 people, We have volleyball night. 40 people show up. We have too many people. We always have to tell people not to come. And that's awesome. We have prayer night and nine people show up. Our priorities are all wrong. Want to know why our kids abandon the faith? Because they don't just listen to our words. They look at our actions. And when we tell them church is important, but they see church is only important unless it's a football game or I'm going boating or I'm playing golf then what that says is church is less important than my leisure. 70% of boys raised in church will abandon it in their teens and 20s to never return. 70%. Why? Because they're watching their fathers. And we think it's the world. We
1: think, oh, the world is taking our kids. What are we doing? I'm a father. My son's not here. What are we doing? See, our heart breaks for our own children. God's heart breaks for his. And he's asking us that same thing. What are you doing? More
0: than 80% of American men call themselves Christians. One out of four attend church on a given Sunday. Even less are involved in gatherings or serving during the week. Can I just tell you to stop making excuses because your family needs you and your church needs you and your city needs you? See, when we labor in unity for Christ,
1: not only will the work go quickly, but it will be incredibly beneficial for us and for
0: the people in our lives. And can I just tell you this, and I've said this before, as Christians, we're to pursue a Paul. Pursue a Paul. Look for somebody who's a little further along than you and be discipled, be teachable. Be a Barnabas. Barnabas was an encourager. Look around, make your life a habit of finding people to encourage. Do you realize if we looked at it, it's probably 10 to 1 that we discourage and criticize versus the one that we encourage? What if we lived lives where we looked around and tried to find people to encourage and then train a Timothy? Look for somebody that needs for you to, you know, kind of take you, take them under, the, under your wing. Be a, uh, pursue a Paul, be a Barnabas, train a Timothy. Be intentional about your relationships. Be on the lookout because sometimes, hey, I appreciate you. Hey, I love you. Sometimes that hug is life-changing for somebody. Encourage regularly those who are serving.
1: Ask the worship team to come up. And I want to ask you this. Just stand. See, it's up to you. It's up to us. Will we allow God to use us?
0: Will we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us? Will we say, you know, that was, I had an emotional reaction to that sermon, Pastor Brian. That was powerful, and I, I felt this way, or I felt that way. Or will we just receive that, what God has? Will we allow him, will we surrender and say, Lord, use me? Because the world isn't changed by extraordinary people. The world's changed by ordinary people with extraordinary surrender. Do you weep for your city? Do we fast and pray for the lost? Do we ask God for opportunities for there to be restoration, rebuilding? Do we believe that God can and does restore families, revive cities, bring those to life who are dead in sin? no matter what the obstacles. So what will we do now? Will we respond? Will our hearts be moldable? Will we serve the King who gave his life for us? Or we will continue to make excuses and keep looking at everybody else. Father, have your way. God, break our hearts for our own sin. For those who don't know you, use us, God. Help us to be a church about whom people say those people, they love Jesus
1: have your way.